John 1. Now I have over here on the piano a bit of an object lesson this evening. This is what some people might call Jenga. Jenga is the, the name for the brand that put these out originally. Now this is not Jenga, this is some off-brand of Jenga. But it's the same idea. In this game you have stacked tiles. They're stacked this way and they're stacked this way. And as these tiles are stacked, they find balance. The tiles are uniform enough that as they sit one on top of another, they all stand. Now, when we think about doctrine, in some ways doctrine is like the game of Jenga. A full tower represents pure biblical doctrine. Everything is in place, everything is where it ought to be, everything is aligned with the scriptures and therefore there is truth. Now, biblical doctrine leaves no room for self-righteousness, it leaves no room for our own doctrine, it leaves no room for a place where we could step in and say, this is my idea and people follow me. When I begin to create ideas or falsely erect doctrine, I'm beginning to place my own ideas into the stack and it just doesn't fit. As we think about this stack, though, we recognize that there are particular pieces that I can pull out of this stack without the whole stack coming down. And while every doctrine is important, there is no doctrine that is not important, we do recognize that there are certain principles, there are certain things that are taught in the scriptures where if a person gets them wrong, the whole concept of Christianity still stands. Things like the text issue, where we believe very strongly that the King James Version, and particularly the text behind it, the Textus Receptus and the Hebrew Masoretic Text, are the correct texts. But we see people all around this country that are using the wrong text, and yet they are still Christians. Their entire framework has not fallen down, though there are holes. And those holes lead to inconsistencies, and those inconsistencies can lead to other doctrines falling away. So I am not trying to minimize certain doctrines this evening, but what I am saying is there are certain doctrines that, if there are holes in those doctrines, the whole idea of Christianity still stands. Well, tonight we're speaking in John 1.14. Look with me at the verse. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. This particular verse teaches us a doctrine, and we need to get this one right. We should get all of them right, but this is one of the doctrines where if we were to pull it out, the whole stack would just come tumbling down. This is one of those doctrines where if we pull it out, everything else falls to pieces. And the pastor may fall to pieces if he's not careful with those all standing there. So we'll be careful not to wander too far in that direction this evening. 
So what we're talking about this evening is something somewhat important, very important, in fact, to doctrine. So please stay with me if you can as we think about the idea of Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, being 100% God and 100% man. There are three truths concerning the incarnation, the incarnation meaning when the word became flesh, we've learned about that, that I would like us to understand this evening regarding the word, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus of Nazareth, the one who we call Jesus Christ. We've already read the verse, so let's look at our first point this evening. The first point being that the word became man when he took on flesh. The word became man when he took on flesh. Now we know, we've already learned from John 1.1 that the word is God. The word, the logos, the one who is the express image of God, the one who is the expression of everything that God is, God in character, in essence, in quality, is in fact God. When we add the Holy Spirit of God, the divine third person of the Trinity, to this picture, we have three distinct persons, absolute unity, one God. So the Trinity is three persons, one God. God the Father, God the Son, who we're calling the Word, or Jesus Christ, and God the Holy Spirit. By its very nature, the Trinity is one of those doctrinal topics that the mind of man cannot wrap his, himself around. How is it that three persons can be one God? We've tried to describe this before in the whole concept of a dance where two people would be moving together. Now, three people, it's a little bit harder to envision, but the whole idea of, of two people moving as one, even though they are separate entities. We've tried our best to wrap our minds around the idea through these pictures, but they're just not complete. When we come to doctrines such as this, our time is better served simply trusting what the scriptures say and not trying to fully wrap our minds around it. We trust 1 John 5, 7 that says there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one. There are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, who is the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Ghost, and those three, these three are one. Another topic that, another doctrine that has this same concept of one that we can't fully wrap our minds around, but we need to take on faith, knowing that any attempt to dismantle or to pick apart this truth, any attempt to make it wholly understandable to our human mind, simply invites more confusion and danger and error than it does profit, is this idea of Jesus Christ being 100% man and 100% God. But, before we can understand the doctrine of the Incarnation, before we can understand really what it means that Jesus Christ became flesh, we must first rest upon the solid ground of the doctrine of the Trinity. We must believe that Jesus Christ is God. We must be fully persuaded that the Word of God is God, that He is the divine second person of the Trinity, that as Philippians 2.6 says, He is equal with God. 
Once we believe and are fully persuaded that Jesus Christ, the Word, is God, then we can understand and better establish the idea of Him being a human, of Him being man. Verse 14 of John 1 tells us that the Word was made flesh. These last words, made flesh, are both very important to our understanding of the transaction that took place nearly 2,000 years ago. We all know the story that's primarily found in the book of Luke, the story of Jesus Christ's birth. In the book of Luke, we learn about Mary. Now Mary, according to the book of Luke, was 100% human. She was born a daughter of Adam. You can trace her lineage all the way back to Adam. She was born. She had a father. She had a mother. She was 100% human. No deity in her whatsoever. There was nothing intrinsically special about Mary except that she was the one chosen of God to bear the Christ, to bear Jesus Christ. Until the day that Gabriel came to her and announced that she was with child, she was just another woman living in Israel. On that day, she became the bearer of God, yet in and of herself, still no divine nature. The moment of her conception, it was decreed by God the Father according to John 3.16 and conceived by God the Spirit according to Luke 1.35 that God, the second person of the Trinity, the Word of God, became flesh. The minute that Mary became pregnant, the Word of God took on a human form. Now, the Word was made. And these words can be somewhat misleading. The scriptures say he was made flesh. And we must understand what the text is telling us. The Greek word behind this translation is the past tense of the word, Greek word ginomai. We've talked about it before. It means to cause to be. We talked about it in regard to John the Baptist. It's used in John 1 verse 3 to describe the world being made. It's used in John 1.6 to describe John beginning his ministry. It's used in John 1.10 to describe the world Again, being made. It's used in John 1.12 to describe those who believe as becoming the Son of God. So this is the fifth time in 14 verses that we've seen this idea, this word being used. And so what we understand then is just like John the Baptist was not always a minister of the gospel, just as the world has not always existed, just as you and I, if we're born again in this room, have not always been sons of God, so too we must understand that the word of God was not always flesh. He was not always human. He was made flesh. He, there was a specific point in time that Jesus Christ became Jesus. Before that, he was the word. Before that, he was the second person of the Trinity. He was not Jesus until he became human. But at that moment, at the moment when Jesus Christ was conceived, the divine second person of the Trinity became flesh. Take note of the fact that the writer, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit here in John 1.14, states that he was made flesh. It didn't say he was made a man. That's a different word. It says that he was made flesh. Now, when the Gospels and the Epistles speak of the flesh, they don't simply reference the physical body, do they? As we think about the word flesh in Scripture, it doesn't always reference the physical body. Uh, in Ephesians 6.12, it says, We wrestle not against flesh and blood. 
As we consider that idea of the flesh, we understand that that's talking about the physical body. We wrestle not against those who have a physical form, but we're wrestling against spiritual forces. However, in verses such as Romans 8.8, 8, the scriptures state that they, are, they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Well, since even believers retain their body after being saved, we can rightly understand that it doesn't mean that those who have a human body cannot please God. It means that those who are walking in their old nature, those who are walking in the spiritual flesh, cannot please God. And so Christ took on the body of a man, and in doing so, we understand that he took on the nature of a man as well. That's what that idea is, of taking on flesh. It's not just that he's taking on a body, he's taking on a nature. He is becoming a man, with one notable exception. That brings us to our second point this evening. The first point, the word became man when he took on flesh. Our second point this evening, the word retained his deity when he took on flesh. The word retained his deity when he took on flesh. See, Jesus Christ was born as a man and he had a human nature. He grew as a man. He learned as a man. He questioned as a man. He thought as a man. He felt pain. He felt joy. He laughed. He cried. He felt fear. He felt devotion. He felt temptation. He would get weary. He would get hungry. He would get thirsty. He would even get angry. He had human nature. But, unlike any other man who ever walked the earth, Jesus Christ, because he was God, knew no sin. Because he was God, he had no sin nature. Though he was a man, though he had 100% of the emotions of man, he was a man who was not tainted by a sin nature. The greatest, well, a great debate, maybe not the greatest debate, but a great debate in theology is then this question. Could Jesus sin? That's a hard question to answer. Could Jesus sin? Well... Many say, no, he was God. He could not sin. And that's true. But he could be tempted. He had a will. He was a man. He faced the temptations that we face. It would greatly cheapen his temptation if there was actually no temptation there. If he could not sin, it would greatly cheapen the idea of him having that relation to us. And so this is one of those questions that we really cannot find a satisfactory answer in this lifetime. I have an opinion. I could state that opinion, but it would do us no good necessarily to the passage to have an opinion on, on that. We understand that Jesus is God, therefore he could do no sin, but Jesus was man and he was tempted at all points like as we. And he can be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. He can relate to us. He can understand what we're going through because he truly faced temptation yet without sin. Jesus' temptations were very real. He felt the pressures to sin the same way we feel the external pressures to sin. But we do know this for a fact. He had no sin nature. Therefore, while he felt the pressures of sin upon him, 
He was not a slave to his sin as we were once a slave to our sin. He was never bound to sin. He was never inwardly compelled to sin as the unregenerate man is compelled to sin. In many ways, perhaps we could liken it to Adam and Eve. They could feel the external deceptions and temptations of sin upon them. But until they fell to sin, they had no sin nature to draw them, to drive them to sin. He was 100% man without the sin nature. Why no sin nature? We already said because he was God, but also because sin was found in Adam. Adam was the theocratic head, the theocratic representative of the race. Therefore, it was Adam that caused the human race to fall. Consequently, Romans 5.12 tells us that when Adam sinned, sin passed upon all men through the line of Adam, so that all have sinned. So every child conceived from a sinful father was born into Adam's sin. We would understand then that sin is passed down through the father. Well, Jesus was not born of an earthly father. He had an earthly mother, but he was conceived of the Holy Ghost, born of a virgin. Therefore, Jesus was able to bypass a sinful nature while still remaining consistent to the justice and to the decree of God that sin would pass down through the line of Adam. But it was bypassed in Jesus because he was born of a virgin conceived of the Holy Ghost. That is why the doctrine of the virgin birth is so important. The virgin birth is another one of these pieces where if it falls down... If it's taken away, all of our theology falls to pieces because Jesus Christ could not have a sinless nature if he was born of an earthly father. So now we come to a crossroads. If Jesus was made flesh, then he is 100% man. What happened to his deity? We know that Jesus Christ was the Word. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. So the Word, as John 1, 1 says, is God. And in John 1.14, the Word, who is God, was made flesh. Took upon Him not just the form of a man, but the nature of a man. What happened to His deity? The answer to the question, as we understand it from the Scripture, is Nothing. Nothing happened to his deity. The Word was God. The Word is God. The Word took on flesh. He was named Jesus of Nazareth. He was 100% man, but he is still 100% God. And that's our final point. Let's explore it for a few moments together. The Word is eternally 100% God and 100% man. The theological perspective that we hold to is known as the hypostatic union. That's a good theological term, the hypostatic union. Hypostatic being an English gloss of a Greek word, hypostasis, meaning foundation or structure. The whole idea being that Jesus Christ is God and man in one hypostasis, in one form, in one structure, in one person. 100% God, 100% man, Two distinct and unaltered natures in one person. True, perfect, undivided, 
and unmixed. The hypostatic union. You may hear that term or read that term. Now you know what it means. Now, why does this matter, Pastor? Why did you tell us at the beginning that if you pull out that block, if you pull out that doctrine, everything comes falling down? Well, the reason why I teach this in this way is because there have historically been four errors that have surrounded the idea of Jesus Christ's incarnation. Let me teach you of those errors quickly. The first error was one sourced in the Arians. Arius was a teacher that was in Alexandria, Egypt. He asserted that Jesus Christ was not God, but that he was a subordinate entity to God. He taught that the Son of God was a, a created being, that he was made flesh, therefore created, therefore a lesser being, and that is based upon a misinterpretation of John 14, 28, is really where they, they rest that case. John 14, 28, they misinterpret that verse. This would be somewhat what the Jehovah's Witness, what the Mormons, and even what Islam believes today. All of them believing that Jesus Christ was a great man, that he was a created being, perhaps a lesser God, as the Jehovah's Witness would believe, one of many gods, a lesser God, but a created being. John 1, 1, pretty clearly refutes that as we've learned the second error was found in the Apollinarians Apollinarius was a scholar in Laodicea and he taught that Jesus had a human body and human emotion but retained an exclusively divine mind so a human body human emotions but a divine mind therefore Jesus Christ had only one nature he only had the divine nature he had no human nature at all he just had human emotions, human body, divine mind, only a divine nature, no human nature. The third error was found in the Nestorians. Nestorius, he taught in Constantinople in the 5th century, and he taught that Jesus Christ was not the second person of the Trinity, that he was not the Word, but rather he was personally united with the Word. So if we think of it this way, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are one God in the Trinity, and then Jesus Christ was united with God the Son into a being whereby the second person of the Trinity lived inside of Jesus Christ. Therefore, the human nature and the divine nature of Christ were both present, but they were separate. He had a human nature, he had a divine nature, but his divine nature was not his own, it was the Word in him, and he had a human nature that was separate from the divine nature which was not his. Ooh. Wrap your mind around that one. The fourth error was found in the Eutychians. Eutychus was also a teacher in Constantinople. He taught that the human nature of God was overcome by the divine nature, and therefore they created one new mixed nature. So he was of two natures, but not in two natures. So it was kind of a mixture of God and man into this melding of a nature. Whereas we state that Jesus Christ was 100% man, 100% God, two distinct natures in one man. By looking into the teaching of God's word in the first 14 verses of John, we can come to a very different conclusion if we're willing to take God's word at face value. If we read those 14 verses along with other scriptures that we can read, we understand that Jesus Christ was 100% God, 
100% man. Consider with me Philippians 2, 5 through 8. I'll read it for you. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. It's Philippians 2, 5 through 8. Consider as well Hebrews 4.15 Christ was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. So we see that Jesus Christ thought it not robbery to be equal with God and notice it didn't just say there the word the second person of the Trinity thought it not robbery to be equal with God. It used his human name. He was not Jesus until Gabriel said his name will be called Jesus to Mary. He was not Jesus until he was born. And it says that Christ Jesus was in the form of God and thought it not robbery to be equal with God. It doesn't say that the Word was in the form of God. It says Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is God. But made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. Jesus Christ was a man. He was tempted in all points like as we and yet without sin. He was tempted, but sinless. He was equal with God. But he took upon flesh. The scriptures do not say that he emptied himself of God. The scriptures do not say that he is a hybrid nature between God and man. We fall into these erroneous assumption, assumptions about Christ as we try to wrap the idea of Jesus Christ being 100% God and 100% man around our very limited minds. So as we close, let's put these pieces together and consider what it is that we've learned today. It's kind of a high topic. We're pretty heavy into doctrine as we begin John 1. We'll get into more narrative and things will lighten up a little bit as we continue. But we're pretty deep into doctrine right now and it's important that we learn it so that our entire framework doesn't come tumbling down. Jesus Christ is the eternal Word of God, wholly unified with the Father, distinct in person, but in character and quality in essence, Jesus Christ took on flesh, assuming a human nature without disrupting that divine nature. Jesus Christ ministered on this earth, and as he did so, he was holy God and holy man. His divinity was never for a moment lost. His divinity was never for a moment laid aside. His humanity for a moment was never unlike our own. He was perfect God. He was perfect man. Though he never ceased to be perfect man, this did not cause him to cease being perfect God. Say, Pastor, this is kind of, what are you saying? God, man, man, God. You're right. God and man. Man and God. 100% God. 100% man. That is Jesus Christ. Acts 20.28 20, tells us that the church of God has been purchased with his own blood. It didn't say the church of Christ has been purchased with his own blood. It said the church of God has been purchased with his own blood. Why could it say that? Because Jesus Christ is God. God in flesh. Paul could say this because Jesus is God. Hebrews 4.15, we already said it, tells us that we have not an high priest that cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we and yet without sin. Why could Jesus Christ, why was Jesus Christ, why was our great high priest 
Why is he able to be touched with the feelings of our infirmities? Because he is a man. Because he has felt what we felt. Because he has gone through what we go through when we are tempted. Because he's felt the anger. He's felt the pain. He's felt the hunger. He's felt the weakness. He's felt those things because he was 100% man. And from the moment that the Son of God took on flesh, he has and he always will be a man. Today, Jesus Christ lives in a resurrected body as 100% man and 100% God. If Jesus Christ ever ceased to be a man like you and like I or a woman, to be a human like we are, our personal hope of resurrected bodies would fall into impossibility. See, Jesus Christ is the first fruits of them that slept. He is the first fruits of the resurrection. The reality that Jesus Christ is a man and he will rise again from the dead, or he did rise again from the dead, is the reality that assures us that we will arise from the dead. If he was no longer a man, then what could we look forward to? Yet if Christ ever ceased to be God, the very authority of Christ to secure our justification before the throne of God and our future salvation is called into question. If he is not God, then he does not have that authority. And so we rest in the teaching of God's word. We rest in the reality that Jesus Christ is man, 100% man. And we rest in the reality that Jesus Christ is God, 100% God. We don't try too hard to wrap our minds around it. We leave that which cannot be comprehended into the realm of the sovereignty and the knowledge of our eternal God. But we do our best to understand it and to live in light of it, knowing how important the doctrine is to those further doctrines, the doctrine of the resurrection, the doctrine of justification and salvation that we hold so dear. Let's pray together. Father, we...